Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm going to be your host tonight. And with me, once again, is Jim Shaw, Red V on Board Game Geek. And Jim and I decided that we wanted to do this episode tonight uh, to talk about the game Quarriers. Quarriers was one of the uh, first games, at least Jim, that I'm aware of, that was sort of a, a dice, a pure, totally dice game that was supposed to be kind of a dice deck building kind of game. And there, it was kind of released to a lot of fanfare, a lot of anticipation, got a lot of rave reviews when it first came out as something novel and interesting and different. And then a little while later, a, a smaller game was published by Richard Garfield called King of Tokyo. Now, this game came out, and it seemed to garner a lot of positive reviews, but it quickly sort of faded due to the fact that there were so few games that were actually available for purchase here, at least in North America. I don't know about anywhere else. So while I was playing Couriers, I was waiting for a uh, edition of King of Tokyo to come out that I could actually purchase, because I had played it at ConCon with uh, some of the guys from the FatCast over there, and uh, had just an awesome time with it and when I finally got my copy of King of Tokyo uh, I talked with you about it Jim and we decided we were going to do this head to head our first Smackdown episode where Quarriers will go up against the King of Tokyo and see who comes out ahead in Dice Madness. So Jim uh, the first thing I'd like to do is say uh, thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show again and welcome. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Thank you Jeff. Um, yeah, this is an interesting thing because although, I mean, they're both, these two games are both dice games, they're not really similar in any way, but I know when I was thinking about purchasing them, um, it was around last year's Essen, I believe, Essen 2011, or no, Origins 2011, uh, and they both were coming out around the same time, and I know they were almost just like competing for that shelf space, say, of... Of which one, which one, which one will you get? Because they're both, like I said, a dice game, and you know, going into it without really knowing which game or how well they're playing uh, or what what you're looking for, I know in my mind they were they were competing for that shelf or space on my shelf. So, and I know I chose Quarriers last year as well, and you know, it got all the big hype, and it, you know, I I think the the, the shiny 135 custom dice was just just an, a a pull that just attracted me to it. Yeah, it almost was like a black hole pull at you, you know, strong gravitational force. It was for me, too, because that that whole notion of all those custom dice just kind of has you drooling. Now, you know, Jim, I know there's going to be a lot of people out there who are going to say that, you know, this is an unfair comparison because Quarriers is a dice-building game, and, and it really does... Uh, oh, it's uh, a lot of the ideas in it to deck building games like Dominion or Thunderstone or or other deck builders that are out there. And King of Tokyo really is not a deck builder. Uh, it, it, it really wasn't trying to do that. I mean, they, so I know there's going to be some people out there who say that we're comparing apples and oranges, but I really do think you also raise a good point, and that's one of the reasons why I thought it was a good idea to do this episode, is that, you know, they are both dice games, and they are both competing for space on my shelf. I agree with you 100%, and, and I think that they're also of similar weight. Uh, I, I really, you know, don't feel that uh, one is this, you know, long in-depth strategic kind of uh, you know, slugfest, it's going to be a brain burner, and the other is light and fluffy and fun. Uh, they're both pretty much equal weight in my mind. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I would. And, I mean, they're, they're similar 
like I said, it's just they are very similar in the time that they came out, um, and even their price range is, is is pretty much about the same. Maybe quarters is fifty, and King of Tokyo is forty. But you know, they they do they're very similar in uh, the scheduling of the games and the weight of the games, and like I said, just using dice and all that stuff. So, in my mind, they were, as I said before, competing right from the get go. So, uh, you know, I think then, uh, you know, we're just going to have to, you know, ask the audience that if they don't necessarily agree with us, if they think we're comparing apples uh, to oranges, uh, you know, we'll have to beg your forgiveness. Uh, but we're going to move on because uh, these two games really, to me, sort of embody some current sort of trends that I've seen going in the industry. And that's really one of the things that I, I want to talk about. So, first of all, for people who are not too familiar uh, with the game of Couriers, Jim, could you sort of give a, just a little brief overview? overview of what Quarriers is and and just the real basics of how it's played. Okay, so Quarriers took that deck building mechanic and instead of buying cards and adding them to your deck, you're buying dice and adding them to your dice bag and then you'll draw a certain amount of dice out, roll the dice and buy new dice, attack your neighbors, um, whatever it is, what have you with what comes up on the dice. Uh, most of the dice have images of uh, or symbols representing certain monsters and, and stats and statistics and uh, damage and health that they do and how much points they score when it comes back around to you and um, you'll play until between 12 and 20 points depending on the number of players and games normally run about a half hour or so Okay, and uh, yeah, you know, King of Tokyo, by contrast, is a game that is pretty much just a straight slugfest. Uh, each player takes the role of a monster uh, that's sort of loosely based on some famous movie monsters like Godzilla and, you know, others that you might have seen. Uh, at least, you know, if you're like me and you grew up with those uh, awesome uh, those awesome movies with, uh, you know, Godzilla and Mothra and, and all the rest of them. And, and, of course, who can forget Ghidra? But anyway... Um, going a little too far in the Wayback Machine, I'm sure, for a lot of people. But there's a few people out there that will remember Ghidra. Anyway, everyone takes on the role of a monster. And the monsters are all sort of intent on smashing Tokyo. And, uh, you know, what, what good monster isn't? So the monsters are all competing with each other to get into Tokyo so they can wreak some havoc and have some fun. The, more, uh, the, the bigger problem, though, is that since all of the monsters want to get into Tokyo, the one that's in Tokyo is going to be attacked by all the other monsters, while the monster that's in Tokyo is going to be lashing out at those trying to get in, uh, trying to maintain his or her position in Tokyo. Uh, the longer you stay in Tokyo, the more sort of fame points, uh, you know, renown points that you get, with the goal being to achieve 20. So you can get these points by uh, attacking... Um, uh, well, actually, I, I, I'm wrong on that. You can get these points by entering Tokyo. You can get the points by still being in Tokyo when it comes around your turn. You can also uh, gain points by certain card effects, um, and that's something that I'll get to in a moment. Uh, you can also gain points... Uh, in the game by rolling dice, okay? And dice is really the heart of the game because uh, in this game you have a set of, I think, what is it, Jim? Six dice and then two extras for, for cards, yeah? 
I believe that's correct, yes. So you have these six dice that you roll, and the dice are, are going to do one of a few basic things. They're, they're either going to show a claw mark, which means that you are attacking another creature. They're going to show a heart symbol, which means you can sort of heal yourself and regenerate damage that you may have suffered at the hand of other monsters or from other card effects. Uh, however, you have to be outside of Tokyo to kind of lick your wounds. If you're inside Tokyo, I guess the National Guard of, you know, or whatever the Japanese equivalent of the National Guard of Tokyo would be, is so busy shooting at you that you really don't have have any time to kind of rest up or heal yourself. Um, the other symbols that you have are these little lightning bolts, which provide you with energy, and that energy can be used to buy special cards. All right, I'm, I'm getting to the cards, so just hang on one second. And then lastly, there's uh, three faces that have numbers, a one, a two, and a three. And those are straight sort of fame points. And if you can get three of a kind, three threes, three twos, three ones, that's how many points you're going to score. And there's a couple other little rules about that as well we don't need to go into. But the lightning bolts allow you to buy what what is what I think the heart of this game, Jim, which is these cards. There's a deck of unique cards, and these cards can do everything from give you another head, which in effect in the game gives you another die. They can give you special abilities, like the ability to manipulate dice that you've rolled. They can directly damage or interfere with your opponents. Um, They can also uh, get you straight victory points. Uh, There's even one in there called It Has a Child. I believe that's the name of the card, where uh, if you die as a monster in the game, because this game does feature player elimination, uh, if you have the It Has a Child card, you get to kind of come back as the child of the monster that has just been killed and and fight again. So the, the uniqueness of the cards in that deck is one of the things that gives the variability in the game and really drives this game. So both games at their heart are about taking a handful of dice. Six in the, in the case of King of Tokyo, five in the case of Quar- Is it five or six, Jim? Um, it's I six, believe you're it? drawing till five, but I is it could five? be wrong about I that I thought right it was now. six. Well, we'll have is to look. Six? I think it's six, Jim. Maybe I'll take a look at that while we're recording because, uh, you know, we're supposed to be the authorities on this. I think, <laughs> I think it's six. Cause I think you, and we just played it last I know time. we did, and I think you kept yelling at my son to draw his dice because he was being a doofus and uh, waiting until his turn to draw his dice. And I seem to recall <laughs> listening to him count out the number six, like, over and over. I was hearing it in my sleep. Anyway... Uh, so yeah, you're rolling dice, and then you're using those dice to try to you know do things in the game and win the game. So at their heart, they're both dice games, and I think that's why it's fair to compare them. So Jim, what was it that first attracted you to Quarriers and or King of Tokyo? What was it that you found interesting? Okay, so when I first uh, saw that Quarriers was coming out, I had read a little bit about it, and that whole dice, buying the dice and putting them in the dice pool, and then drawing the dice, rolling them figuring out what you're going to do with it, that appealed to me, and I got pretty excited about it. It sounded like a really cool idea. Now, like many people, I thought that the whole QU theming of the game, everything in the game seems to revolve around a QU sound. Quarriers, Quiddity, Quarmageddon, the whole game is, has this goofy Q theme that really doesn't make any sense. But You think it quashes that. your excitement in the game? <laughs> Sorry, man. I may take that out, but I may leave that in because it just goes to show how ridiculously silly the whole QU thing is. All right. Anyway, go ahead. Yes. Quit it. Anyway. (laughs) Go ahead. Anyway. So even despite that, the game sounded neat and interesting. And um, as I heard reviews as they were coming out of uh, Origins, it was like, Quarriers, amazing game, amazing game. 
And uh, so got excited about it, you know, 135 custom dice. They look neat and nice in the picture, you know, just a quality, uh, look like a quality piece of work. Everything about it uh, to me said, this is going to be a ton of fun. And so I uh, ordered it as soon as it came out. Uh, got my nice dragon die tin. The first edition came in the tin. It may still. I'm not quite sure. Um, oh, no, actually, I take that back. I played it at your house first. That's correct. Yes, yes. Um, played it at your house. We played two games of it. I thought it was fantastic. I was real excited about it. I ended up, and then I ordered it myself and, you know, was playing it with some of my friends. As I kept playing it, though, I found that it became less and less fun as maybe it just it just got explored out it just seemed that every game was very similar you know or and through the game it was, it was almost here i am chucking these dice and not having as much fun as i thought i would and that was just just one of the concerns uh about it then after playing it about uh 20 times i ended up uh selling or trading it away on the geek so, uh, you know, basically from what I'm hearing you say, you know, you had this this initial great reaction to it. And, you know, that that kind of mirrors my experience as well. I mean, you know, the first time that I got the, the, the tan, I, I had all those dice and, you know, set up the game, shuffling through the cards and, and bringing out those five unique dice for, for each creature, each spell. And, you know, just thinking to myself, oh, the variability in this game is going to be incredible, you know, with all these cards and all these different dice, you know, no two games ever going to be the same, you know, and uh, started, you know, playing pretty consistently. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed is, uh, you know, Oliver Kiley writes in his uh, framework for critical reviews, he talks about, you know, what is the decision space in the game? You know, what, what, how, how meaningful are the decisions in the game? And, and I think that that's really what I started to notice, which is the decisions are kind of automatic uh, in the game. They're, they're, it's very rare that you would gain, you know, the money in the game is called quiddity. And, and every die is a mixture of either an icon that's going to give you some sort of a spell effect or a monster that you have summoned to aid you in your fighting with different kind of levels of power, depending on what you roll, or you're going to get this quiddity. And it's, it's again, the QU theme. And it's, uh, you know, either ones or twos in, in this denominations. And, you know, what I kind of found was that no matter, you know, what I did when I would roll, if I had like six quiddity, I wasn't going to buy something that was only three quiddity. You know, that, that that would kind of be a waste. And and so the decisions were always kind of like, well, what's the maximum thing that I can buy? Because usually in this game, not always, but usually maximum uh, value is going to get you the the best die. You know, uh, uh, some of the expensive dice in the game are, are ones like the Quake Dragon and the Questing Wizard, and, and these cost, you know, eight for the Qu uh, Quake Dragon, uh, eight for the Primordial Ooze, seven for the Questing Wizard, and so therefore, if you if you can ever gain that much quiddity with only those six dice, you know, you're going to get it. It would be foolish of you to pass that up just to get another portal die, for example. So, uh, you know, it seems yeah, to me that there's no real decisions to be made in the game. Yeah, your only real decision is almost like when there's of equal value. Like, all right, I have an eight-value dragon and I have an eight-value ooze. Which one am I going to go for? You know, because they're of similar value. Or same thing if you're at if you have six quiddity, I can get this. Uh, six cost death dealer and this six cost warrior or whatever it may be and you know you might decide which way you're going to go with those um but 
it just seemed almost automatic. Yeah. And as I was playing games, it seemed, even though they're different cards, they're very similar cards. Like, you have three cards that are exactly the same to go with uh, one of the sets of dice. Um, let's say the Goblin. There's a level, or there's a one, two, and a, or a level one, two, and three Goblin, basically, to match up with those dice. They're, the level one one is weaker, it's cheaper to buy, it's, um, you know, it doesn't have as much health, uh, but essentially they're about the same. They have similar powers. The third level one might have a slightly better power or something like that on its card, but essentially they're almost all the same. Yeah, and that really and that cut was- down on, on that variety that I was imagining. You know, I, I imagined <laughs> with all those cards that I was really going to be getting a different experience, but really, in effect, uh, the, the deck was almost cut in third because... You know, you you really are still only talking about a scavenging goblin, you know, or or you really are only talking about a life charm. You know, there's not a a vast difference between the different iterations or or levels of those cards. And and I think you're absolutely right. And that was one of the things that disappointed me about the game. Yeah, I'll be, um, I I think there's 36 monster cards maybe in there, maybe a little more, a little less. But, I mean, that only turns out to be 12 different monster types, really when you're looking at uh, there being three cards of each one. So it sounds like you agree with me that, you know, that the variability that we thought was going to be there wasn't there, and the decision, kind of, the decisions that you had to make in the course of the game seemed to be largely automatic. Would you agree with that? I would, and more importantly, what I found was missing was the fun. I just did not find the game fun. You know, at, when I was playing it the first time, it was it was interesting. You know, I'm trying to figure out these dice and seeing what it is. But then by about the 10th game, I'm just kind of drawing through and draw my dice, roll the dice, puzzle through it. You know, it's not even that hard of a puzzle. Um, you know, either bring out the monsters or buy this card and, you know, see what points I get. But it was just kind of draw, uh, droned on. And it's, it's a very quick game. It's only, like I said, 30 minutes. But... It just was very dull and just blah. Yeah, and that's, I did it, not want that. This is supposed to be your fun chucking the dice and and with that anticipation of what am I going to get on this roll. And I was thinking a little bit about this um, last night after we had played. And I think it's the fact that you don't score points until it comes around to your turn again. And I think that just almost like dulls that feeling of success maybe. Or like if I bring out the monsters that I need to win the game, now I have to sit and wait. And again, that sounds like you would be on the edge of your seat and and watching each player roll right. their dice. Suspenseful, kind of, yeah. Yeah, sit there. Yeah, it, it really. I think you're absolutely. You know, I never thought of that, Jim, and I think that's a really good point. You know, is that you know, the 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 real in game terms, as far as winning and losing, the real action is is delayed. You know, it, you 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 put out your monsters and you cross your fingers and hope that nobody else draws dice that can kill them. And if they don't, you're like, yay, I score points, and that's kind of it. But, uh, you know, you also said something to me yesterday when we were playing it again in anticipation of recording this was, you know, you said that there's no, like, standing dice-chucking moments, you know. It's like, this is not a game that inspires me to, like, get up out of my chair and, you know, shake those dice real well and chuck them on the table and get ready to yell at what I see. It just kind of seems largely procedural. And uh, I think it really says something when you have a game that's only 30 minutes – and yet, uh, it really is kind of boring. I mean, you would think that a 30-minute game 
you know, should never feel like it's long because it's only 30 minutes for God's sake. But this one really seems to kind of drag. And, and I think one of the reasons for that too is there's no real kind of strategy in this game. You know, there's no depth, there's no strategic opportunities. There's no, like you said, I'm either going to use my quiddity to put out the creatures that I happen to roll, or I'm going to buy a card. And that's sort of an either-or choice, and usually it's obvious. I mean, if you if you can put out a creature, usually you do, because depending on how everybody else rolls, there's a good chance that at least one of them might survive and score you some points. So to not put out a creature seems almost like you're giving up easy points that you could score. Uh, you know, and that leads me to my next problem with the game, which is the idea that, you know, I can have this awesome Quake Dragon, and I can go, and I can roll the die, and I can get two quiddity for it. And and this really bothers me. It's like if if I invest, you know, eight quiddity in getting this awesome Quake Dragon, it's like, what what does that mean thematically? Like, it's like I call my dragon to me. It's like, all right, you know, I, I summoned you from the wilds, if you read their, their sort of flavor text in the game. And now you shall go and destroy that questing wizard. And then the dragon's like, now nah, here's some here's some change. Why don't go go get yourself something nice? It's like I don't, I don't understand what that means. I mean thematically You have milked the dragon for two quiddity. <laughs> I have milked the dragon. Something else Greg Fokker can milk. Uh, not only can he milk cats, but apparently he can milk dragons. I don't know, but it bothers me thematically a tremendous amount that, you know, I, I can understand the different levels, you know. It's like, okay, maybe the, the dragon's having some, like, you know, a gastritis or something that day. He's not feeling real well. So, you know, uh, today he's only really fighting at a strength of five. You know, it's like, okay, you know, I can kind of buy the different levels, and the luck involved in not knowing what level dragon's going to come out. But to not have a dragon come out at all, um, to me, is thematically uh, unexplainable and disappointing in terms of gameplay. I mean, in the game that we played yesterday with my son, Jim, you know, I, I think I think my son bought a Quake Dragon. He, he was lucky enough to get um, a lot of quiddity early on. He bought himself a Quake Dragon, and every blessed time that boy rolled that die, except once in the game, all he got was quiddity for it. Yep. And um, that's uh, one of those things. There, there may be a variant. There's a ton of variants for this game. Um, and there may be one that allows you to change the face of a die if you spend the quiddity or something like that. But um, that goes into um, changing the rules of the game and not keeping it as it was presented um, and uh, there is an official variant, which we did try last night. In yes, the, we did. In, yeah. Just to try and get ready for this and to try and compare it to what we did, what we had played before. And I found the game pretty much similar. Oh, it was interesting. The first 10 minutes, I was like, hey, this isn't too bad. And then the last 20 minutes were just kind of, oh, yes, I still don't like it. Yeah, yeah. Now, for those who aren't familiar with what Jim's talking about, you know, there's sort of a, a semi-official variant that has been put out, I think, in the Cormageddon uh, expansion. It's actually in the rule book. And um, basically what it means is is that instead of only being able to buy one die, 
uh, at the start of your turn, uh, uh, when you are spending your quiddity, you can buy up to two dice. So you can split your quiddity. So if you have eight, instead of getting that primordial ooze, you could get yourself a portal and a shaping spell or something, you know. So you can sort of split your quiddity and buy two dice. Uh, and, and like, I agree with you. At first blush, that kind of thought like, ooh, you know, that's kind of cool. I can buy two things instead of one. But then I still come back to, but why wouldn't you buy the stinking quake dragon? Or the primordial ooze. They're just so much more effective um, than, than these other things that you could buy. Um, so, so I agree with you. It, it didn't really work for me. Uh, and then there was this other thing where uh, in this variant, when you score a die on your turn, you have to return that die. You have to cull it. It's, it's now out of your collection. So, you know, the one time my son got the Quake Dragon... He used it, uh, he scored it, and then he had to put it back. It was called, it was gone, and so, you know, the only thing that I, the only reason that I can think of why you would do that is if you wanted to prolong the game. And to me, it doesn't need to be any longer than it is. And if you want to make it longer, just play to more points. I don't, I don't understand the culling thing where, you know, okay, what? yeah, go ahead, There's There is a, uh, uh, catch the leader, rich get richer, um, thing going on in that game like if you get the as the rules in the first edition uh stated uh if you had if you've got the quake dragon and then the quake dragon comes up he's going to kill everything else on the board and he will more than likely survive and score you three four points whatever it be and he he's worth probably the most points in the game uh next to maybe the wizard um and you already have the quake dragon so it went back in your bag and you draw it again and if it came up again you would already have it. Oh, um, no, you wouldn't because you get two quiddity, Jim. <laughs> sometimes you would have two quiddity, but that's not too terrible. Um, oh, that's bad. <laughs> anyway, so by removing the dice from you, it, um, I think it's supposed to make it so that now you're not as rich. You've lost your most valuable die or your most powerful die. But in some ways... That kind of resets the your dice pool, resets your game, uh, your strategies for the game. Because um, let's say you roll the first thing, you've gotten, I don't know, a, a warrior. Um, he comes out, makes his way all the way around the board. You score him, and now he's out of your pool. Your dice, is, your dice pool is back, is reset to essentially what it was at the beginning of the game. You haven't advanced your your strategy or your or your gameplay, uh, you haven't taken uh, that narrative arc in any direction. It's it's almost starting over. That's and, a really good point. Uh, yeah, and that's that almost that's dull as well. You know, that's that's that that repetitiveness that's that wears on you. And like you said, it is a longer game now because you're kind of resetting. Um, and these are all ideas that I thought would work. I was I was kind of excited. And again, when I started playing it, I thought, hey, this is pretty neat. And it just kind of fizzled out, went like a, a steep downhill. So in thinking about this game, you know, for me to kind of sum it up, I, I think that, you know, look, thematically, aside from the sort of, you know, clever play on words with the QU stuff that, that you know, inspires us to use all sorts of puns, there really isn't anything there. Uh, there's no real depth to the game, uh, very little sort of opportunities for long-term strategy, especially if you're playing with those rules that, you know, we've just been talking about because, like you said, you are sort of resetting yourself back to square one. Um, there, there's no real meaningful, that I found, decisions to be made in the game. 
And so all of these things, you know, kind of lead up, you know, at least for me, to, to, to make this game just not successful at all. I mean, I, I also look at, uh, you know, one of the things on Oliver's list is this sort of, you know, the, the ergonomics of the game and, you know, the functionality of the game. And I, I got to be honest with you, the dice, quite a few of the dice, uh, at least in the first edition, I had a horrible time reading. They were sort of uh, poorly stamped. The numbers were hard to read. Uh, and this isn't just because... You know, I'm an older guy. This, this is, you know, anybody looking at it was having a difficult time reading the numbers and figuring out what they were. So it kind of didn't really pass that test either. And the, the level of interaction, you know, it, it sounds great that it's like you're putting out these monsters and, and you're going to attack your opponents and haha, you know, but it is such a sort of a parade-like procedural sort of a thing. It's like, okay, here's my monsters. They attack you and then you and then you and then you. And that doesn't even make any sense to me thematically. The idea that... You know, my monsters just go out and attack everybody equally at full strength and do exactly the same damage to everybody. I, I would think it would be more interesting if you could choose the opponent that you're going to attack. And and maybe that would add some strategy or some decisions in the game. But since it's largely automatic, everything in this game is largely automatic in my mind, it really doesn't pass the test. And, and I think that that's why uh, I've got this game up for auction even as we record this. And it's a game that I don't think is going to stand the test of time. Uh, how would you sum it up, Jim? Um, I think it's it just did not live up to the promise of what it could have been or even what I wanted and even now uh, it's two expansions into it if you were a big adopter of this game and um, let's say you bought the second edition to try and fix it or, or um, maybe improve it because you would have more choices and put those cursed dice in and then you bought the, the, the next expansion the Quarmageddon because it's got the big box and the nice dice trays and it's got these new revamped rules and again you're going to try and get more variety but now you're into a what amounts to a dice game for like $130, $150 or so. And for what should have been a decent game right out, right out of the box or at, at, at the first edition, I think it's just going to fade away. I think it's going to fade away quietly. Well, you know, unfortunately, I'm going to have to agree with you. Um, you know, and uh, now, now let's talk about the, the, the other game that we were talking about in our head to head SmackDown, uh, which is King of Tokyo. Now, King of Tokyo, I had, like, no expectations for. As a matter of fact, when I saw it at ConCon, I thought it was the stupidest-looking thing I'd ever seen. I mean, come on, cardboard little cutouts of these weird-looking little monsters that I have to put in a stupid plastic stand. I hate stupid plastic stands. I hate cardboard cutouts. Give me some minis, for God's sake. I don't like anything like that. The little tiny board, a bunch of clunky dice, and some cards. I'm thinking, this is it? This is all there is to this game. And, and I was kind of very skeptical when I sat down at the table to play it. And yet, when I played it, we, we played a, a five- or six-player game the first time we played it with my wife, my kids, and uh, I don't think it was Matt Loader. I don't know. It might have been Josh Look. I don't know who it was that, that we were playing with, but we had an absolute blast. And that, that sort of, uh, you know, standing die rolls, you know, that, that happens all the time in King of Tokyo. And to me, it just goes to show that, 
you know, you, you don't always need a hundred dice or you don't need all of the chrome if the game itself is good. Um, because so to my mind, King of Tokyo succeeds, uh, you know, not much of a, you know, build up here, but to my mind, King of Tokyo succeeds on all, uh, on all the levels that Couriers fails. Okay. Especially when you look at what it is. Um, what was your experience the first time you played it, Jim? What were your thoughts? Um, very, I just was excited to, you know, it, through the whole game, I was very, uh, just excited to play it. I, you know, you're going through your turn, you roll the dice three times. It's very Yahtzee style, but, um, that whole attacking the king of the hill basically is what the game comes down to. The person in Tokyo is the only person that you can attack. You know, what, are you going to choose to keep your claws? Are you going to choose to heal? Are you going to choose to use energy to power yourself and mutate your monster? And there is just this sense of excitement throughout the entire turn. And then if you get into Tokyo, and, and a lot of that stuff is automatic, and I thought that might be a problem, but no, it just flows nicely. Like, if you attack the guy in Tokyo um, and he leaves, you go in. You don't get to choose to go in. You don't, you know, can't stay out and play it safe. No, you go to Tokyo. And now you're the king of the hill, and you can be attacked by the next player, or as it goes around. And, you know, it's up to you when you leave Tokyo. And But that simplicity of that system just led to this game that you can play with anyone. And the thing that's interesting, too, it's a game that spits in the face of modern board gaming sensibilities. Like I said, it's got cardboard stand-ups. I hate cardboard stand-ups, like you. It's a... Roll three dice or three times Yahtzee style dice game, you know, and we're in this time of worker placement and doing different things. This does, this is Yahtzee basically. Um, it's it's got player, got elimination. player elimination. Yeah. We yeah. don't have, uh, we don't play those games anymore with player elimination, but this one has it and it's fantastic. I can't say enough good things about this game. I play it with my kids, my whole family. I got it and I'll be honest, I only got it about a month ago when it, the, the second printing came out. Like I said, I'd bought Couriers a year ago. Um, then purchased uh, King of Tokyo now that the, the second printing was out, and it just blew me away. You know, it's, and like you said, there was Couriers with all the shiny bling, and King of Tokyo, this little six-dice game that could, and I think it's just a testament to uh, Richard Garfield and how well that man can, can make a game. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you on, on all your points here, and I'm going to add a few more. I, I think one of the things that, that makes this game very different from Couriers is, well, Couriers felt very procedural to me, and the decisions were largely sort of automatic. I think the decision space in King of Tokyo is much greater. Now, you know, we're not talking Kalos. We're not talking, you know, uh, uh, Go here, all right? We're, we're just talking... For what it is, a dice rolling game, there's some decent decisions to be made here. And a lot of it has to do with that walking that razor's edge between do I dare stay in Tokyo to try to gain those two points when it comes around my turn when I've only got five health, you know? Maybe I could make it, maybe I wouldn't, you know? Do I take the chance, you know? Or do I take the energy, you know? I'm really looking to gain that card, but my opponents... Um, you know, really uh, want that card too, I can tell, and, and I'm, am I going to be able to snag it before them? And, you know, so the decisions in the game are much more meaningful to me, uh, to my mind, than any of the decisions in Quarriors. 
you know, also there's this sort of, you know, the, the, the level of conflict is, is so in your face in this game. You know, the dynamics, the, the player interaction, the trash talking that goes on in King of Tokyo. You know, when you're rolling, it's like there's one claw, you know, and I'm like, you know, uh, you know, Cyber Bunny smash, you know, and then it's like you roll again. It's like, oh, two more claws. And the person in Tokyo has only got five life. They're like, oh, no. And then, you know, you roll again, you get some lightning and, you know, you really damaged them, but they're not quite. And they're like, I'm out of here, man. And they come out of Tokyo and you go stomping in. And there's just kind of a lot of, of just sort of direct kind of interaction and and uh, visceral sort of fun, you know? I, this is going to sound really stupid, Jim, but one of the other things that uh, from from a sort of, uh, that, that, that sort of ergonomic kind of standpoint, you know, the, the, the feel of the game and the pieces of the game, I love the dice, man. These chunky, huge, like, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty big dude and I have fairly large hands. And, you know, you know what they say about men with large hands. Large hands, large gloves. But anyway... Um, I have these huge chunky dice, man, that I have to like, I have to use both my hands to hold them. You know, these are not little stupid dice. I mean, they're these big chunky dice. And when I roll them, they're, they're kind of tumbling almost in slow motion in my mind, you know, just little things like that, you know, just add to the experience of the game for me. And this is one that I find I'm standing up for all the time. Oh yeah. Every turn is, is like, oh, I just need to get that last three and I'll have three victory points or I need to get that. Uh, third claw, and then, you know, I'll do damage to the person in Tokyo. And the other interesting thing is, um, like I said, I play with my kids, and my kids are young, uh, eight and five, um, and because you're not attacking anybody, you're not making that decision to attack, you are, you are attacking the monster in Tokyo. Everybody knows that's who you attack. There's no right or wrong about it. It's, it's easy for a child or, or other players that might normally get upset if you were to say, okay, I'm attacking you. You know, there's no arguing or discussing it. You know, it's, okay, I'm in Tokyo. That's the way it goes. And I think that just makes it all run so smooth. And it's, it's just fantastic. And every dice roll is, has that, that third roll is like, ooh, am I going to get what I need to get the bonus, you know? Right. And it, it's always exciting. Yeah, I think I agree with you, too. There's something odd about games. You know, the only other game that's like this one, in my mind, is Survive. Survive is a game where you're constantly trying to kill. It's a stronghold game. Uh, it's a reprint of, a, of an old classic, and boy, is it a great game. But it's another game that's just direct, like, back and forth, like, in-your-face conflict. You are actively trying to kill the other player's people. You're trying to eat them with sharks, eat them with sea monsters, smash their boats with whales, and make them drown or die in a bloody volcano explosion at the end of the game. And yet, for some reason, because everybody's doing the same thing, people don't seem to get upset about it. Kids don't get upset about it. You know, they, they, they think it's fun, you know. As Scott Nicholson would say, you know, when the shark comes up, you know, you make the jaws sound, you know, dun, 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 and then it's nom, 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 as the shark eats a tasty person. And I always say it tastes like chicken, right? So <laughs> the, the kids really, I mean, they don't, it, it's, it's player elimination in a lot of ways, but they're okay with it. And King of Tokyo, because of what you just said, it's, it's understood. If you're inside Tokyo, you are attacking everybody outside. If you're outside, you're attacking in. Nobody's feelings get hurt. Even when my kids have, have had their creature die, they like to like make the, the big dramatic sound of the monster falling, and then they put the corpse in Tokyo Bay. This is their idea. <laughs> and they have the corpse floating in Tokyo Bay, you know, kind of 
clogging the harbor. And, I, you know, they, they, and then they watch, you know, because another thing is, you know, this is also a game, Jim, that doesn't last that long. You know, this is a game that most of my experience, it, it takes 30 minutes. And so even when players are eliminated, there's still, there's such a good time going on at that table that people want to hang out and watch and see who comes out on top. It's that king of the hill that you were talking about that is, is just, uh, it, it makes for such an exciting game. Yeah, and it and it follows that that nice story arc of like okay, the Tokyo is empty. The first monster goes in there, gets his victory points. Uh, maybe at the beginning of the game, he'll stay in there a while and duke it out, you know, and let and then it'll come back into you, and then uh, maybe you'll heal up or you'll try to attack back. But then it'll have that dramatic ending as as the monsters whittle away, as they drop away, and and that monster dies, and then then the next player is eliminated, and then it comes down to like the final two. And, I mean, I've had some great games where, like, those last moments are just, I just need a claw. Against my daughter, I remember this game, and I just needed to get one claw. One to kill claw, the little and, girl. And I would have I killed her. I would have stomped her into the ground, and it would have been the greatest day ever. But I failed. I failed to get that claw. And... I even had an extra reroll of the dice power of the mind or whatever it was. I think I was a telepathic monster or something at that time. And I, uh, it was just a total epic fail. And then it came around to her and she got her final two victory points for being in Tokyo and won the game. And I was a failure and I was laughed at by my own family. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's a, it, it is. It's such a great game. It's such a lot of fun. And, and you know, the theme in this one, I do feel, comes through. Now, maybe that's only because I grew up watching the Godzilla movies, you know? I grew up watching the movies where poor Tokyo is constantly getting itself smashed, uh, you know, and, and shots of, of uh, you know, citizens of Japan running away, you know, pointing behind them over their shoulders, you know? And then you see the dude in the rubber suit. It was... It, the, the theme is just so strong, and, and I think one of the things where the theme comes through is not just in the mechanics of the game, although the way that the theme and the mechanics are married together is a beautiful thing. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a seamless union um, because everything makes sense mechanically and thematically. Um, but the, the other thematic thing that, that just blows me away in this game are those unique cards, is that whole deck of cards. And, you know, all of the cards just either make you laugh or make you go, wow, that's cool, or, or make you think, you know, oh, you know, look, you know, my son got the shrink ray in this one game. Oh, my God, you know? And he was just pounding everybody with this stupid shrink ray, and we couldn't get rid of it, you know? We, we couldn't, you know, every time you'd get a heart, we needed to heal, and so, you know, because we were almost dead, uh, my daughter and I, and, and he was just gleefully piling those tokens on on us, and, and we were ending up rolling one or two dies a turn. And, uh, you know, there's just so much fun in those cards, you know, the cards like, you know, that, that shows the national guard coming and, you know, it's like, okay, you can gain two fame by fighting the national guard, but then you're also going to have to take damage, you know, and I like those trade-offs too, you know, it's like, okay, here's a game where I'm going to actually spend the resources, my hard earned resources, those little lightning bolts, which are, uh, energy, which uh, are represented by green kind of cubes and, I'm going to spend my hard-earned resources in order to gain fame, but I also, you know, I also have to take some wounds for that. And, and, you know, that makes you think a little bit, you know. Now, it's not an epic decision that you have to make. It's not one that's going to induce analysis paralysis, but it does make you pause for a second and think. 
And there's a lot of little decisions in this game, in particular related to the timing that we've been talking about. When to leave Tokyo, you know, when to heal as opposed to when to, you know, let let health be danged and, and roll those dice again because you want that six energy so that you can get that card that's right in front of you that you really want. And so there, there's some real meaningful, tense decisions to be made in this game. Um, so, you know, on every level, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm looking at my revamped sort of, you know, uh, uh, critical review format uh, of Oliver's, you know. Um, what's the decision space in the game? Uh, it's got great decisions, especially for a dice game, for goodness sake, you know. The game's dynamics are fantastic. The player interaction, the pacing, the flow, everything. There's, you know, not a ton of depth in the game or strategic opportunity, but you know what? It's a dice game. It's supposed to be a 30-minute, 40-minute fun fest. I, I don't think it needs to have you know, this this fantastic strategic depth to it. Because on theme, it scores a win. On the functionality and the ergonomics of it, it scores a win. Everything about it is a winner in my book. I On a side note, I want to say, also, like, setup time is also matches. Like, Warriors, for a dice game, is too long to set up uh, for what it is, you know, or for what it turns out to be. It, it takes you ten minutes or so to set that game up. Uh King of Tokyo might be the fastest game I can get ready on the table more than any other game I own. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. Basically, yeah. pull the board out, give everybody a monster, and hand out some dice, and you're ready to go. Yeah, you know, yeah. Or lay shuffle out, lay those out cards. cards. Yep, yep. Uh, and, and again, that that's another place where it wins. So, uh, you know, in, in, uh, Jim, I want to thank you for uh, joining me for this episode. And, and it sounds like you agree with me that in our first head-to-head game smackdown... And it's not even Sunday. Um, what we're doing here is we are giving the crown, I believe, to King of Tokyo as the king of the dice games from last year. And I can only hope that another reprint will be coming soon so that more and more people can gain access to this game because I, I think this game is fantastic. I think it smacks couriers into the ground, personally. And uh, I think this is a game that is, is going to be around for a while. Jim, what are your uh, uh, final thoughts on uh, this this head-to-head matchup? Anything you want to add? Oh, yeah, I think um, Quarriors came out with that big splash, and um, much like I think a flash in the pan might define uh, Quarriors pretty aptly, um, it's going. I believe it's going to fade out and and fizzle out as soon as maybe they stop making expansions for it. It's going to pretty much go away. I don't think people are going to be playing it for a long time. Whereas uh, King of Tokyo, that uh, had this slow build, and I mean, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, they're almost sold out of their second print run, yeah. like a month after it came out. Yeah. Um, and it, if it takes another six months to a year for the third printing to come out, I think that's going to sell out real quick. Uh, they just, it's almost a slow build of excitement, and I think this game is just going to keep building and keep building, and I think it's a winner that could easily end up in Barnes and Nobles and uh, on any game, on any big box store shelf too like even at a walmart or a target or something like that i could see this game being there and just being a ton of fun being played by anybody yeah you know i hadn't thought of that but i agree with you there i mean i think uh this game has the potential to have a low enough price point because of the component cost in it uh although the second edition with the sort of deeply etched die are are much better than the the first edition where it was kind of just screened on there but 
you know, I think you're right. I think this is a game that I could easily see on any shelf because the game is quite simple to learn. It's quite simple to play. I, I've introduced this game to non-gamers with no problems whatsoever, and they've had a, a great time with it. I also think the other thing this game has going for it is an expansion is a card deck away. I, there, there's really nothing more that needs to be added to this game. And, and, and that's one of the things that I've been talking a lot about on some of these podcast episodes is it, it bothers me nowadays that it seems like games are designed and released already needing an expansion, you know? King of Tokyo needs nothing, in my opinion. It's a complete game right out of the box. I can own it and play it for the rest of my life and be happy. But if they did want to put an expansion out, all they have to do is come up with some new cards, doing some new wacky things. We certainly don't have to, you know, have other things going on and... uh, you know, I, I think it's just it's perfect as is, and and because the expansions would be so easy to produce and cheap, you know, again, you could see that being uh, uh, put out along with some of the other kind of cards and, and card games that you see in those larger uh, retailers. Yeah, I agree. Um, I I think the expansion is coming out next month, maybe a couple months from now. I'm really not even looking for it because I think the game is just the perfect length right now. I don't want it to be any longer. Um, other than, like I said, maybe if they want to add some extra crazy cars that might do something ridiculous or maybe a different kind of dice or something like that. But if it goes past that 30, 45 minute mark, I think that might hurt the game a little bit. But if it can stay at that strong 30 minutes, you know, quick, everybody's having a good time, the turns are simple, there's nothing crazy about it, then I think the expansion could be fantastic. But right now, I'm not even looking for one. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100% uh, on that. I don't think it needs it either. So uh, I would welcome it, but doesn't need it. Whereas I felt Couriers, you know, man, Couriers needed something. And, and so far I haven't seen anything that really fixes that game, at least to my liking. And, and, and I, I really, because of all the things we've talked about, I, I'm not even going to soften that. I, I really just think, I really think Couriers is, is kind of, uh, uh, it just doesn't pass the test. Um, and it's not one that I can really recommend. So Jan- I think it's a broken game. Oh, oh, strong. Oh, it's a broken game. All right. I like that. That'll get a lot of comments uh, from <laughs> from people who will rush to defend Couriers. Because, you know, when I post this, I'm going to also have to post a notice on the Couriers webpage and the King of Tokyo uh, page and, you know, see what people think, see whether they agree with us or disagree with us. And I'm sure there's going to be people who disagree. And I certainly welcome their opinion and, and will be happy to listen to anything they have to say. But it's going to be a hard sell to convince me that, Warriors as a dice game uh, is a better game than King of Tokyo. So, Jim, I want to thank you uh, once again for joining me on another episode of The Long View. And, of course, I want to send my uh, thanks out to all of the wonderful people at 2d6.org who are gracious enough to host The Long View. And I want to thank them for their continued support and express my appreciation to them. If you have any questions for Jim or myself, I invite you to please uh, post your comments or questions at 2d6.org, uh, where the podcast is hosted. You can also, though, post your comments perhaps on the Longview Guild which is on BoardGameGeek.com so for Jim Shaw I'm Jeff Gamble and thank you once again for listening good night